This week's episode contains themes of violence, public executions, and a lot more violence. If that isn't your cup of tea, that's fine, and we'll see you next week. where two friends sip tea and spell literature's dark histories. I'm Jane. <laughs> and I just put a Reese's Pieces in my mouth. And that's I'm Mackenzie. Oh my god. Um, hi, welcome back to our podcast that we have. Hi. Hi. This How is... have you all been? Good. Oh, you weren't asking me? No, I wasn't. <laughs> Alright, that's fine. It's been a whole... Five minutes since we recorded our last episode, so we're doing... We're doing a speed recording round. Yep. Just to catch up. I thought I had time to eat Reese's, but apparently... No, we don't. <laughs> no Reese's pieces for you must go fast. <laughs> don't roll your eyes at me. I'm real tired. Jane and I bought yarn today, and she's uh, very excited to get her knitting project started. I mean, says the person who bought four... Four skeins of, of yarn, four skeins. It was four dollars a skein. Any knitters know that's a good deal, and it's a hundred percent wool. All right, all right. <clears throat> Moving forward. So this week, so this week we are covering Charles Dickens, Dickens's, Dickens's, <laughs> uh, Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, we love a Tale of Two Cities. Yes, we do. I love a Tale of Two Cities. So the first time I read this book was in tenth um, grade for British romantic literature can't believe that was a class you had. Yeah, it was, like, our European literature class that, like, how everyone has that European literature class. Ours no. was just named Funky. We didn't. We just had English. Oh. English so, 9. English 10. English 11. Oh. We had, like, first freshman year was, like, world literature, like, old literature, like, the Bible, mm. and, like, a couple things about, like, African society. It was a weird time. And then, um, 10th grade was British lit. 11th grade was supposed to be American lit. And then 12th grade was, I think for, since I took APs 11th and 12th, it was all just kind of combined. But I think 12th grade for like the regular class setting was supposed to be something along the lines of, um, like more creative writing based. Yeah. I would think. But anyways, I read this book in 10th grade. I read this book during my senior year because our English teacher was obsessed with us reading books that he deemed as having literary merit. Duh. Whatever that means. He couldn't give me a definition. But this was one of the books that, because we had to read um, one book of literary merit on our own each quarter and mm-hmm. like write about it. And this was the book that I chose for the second quarter. So like around, I read this over um, Christmas break. For the most mm, part, mm-hmm. I read it, and it honestly, I loved it. Like I'm still salty at that teacher because he still can't tell me what literary merit means, other than like nothing contemporary or nothing like I don't know aimed at young adults or basically a bunch of crusty white British dudes is all we can read that counts as Fantastic. valid literature. 
thanks. But we do love, I did love A Tale of Two Cities. I really yeah, do love it. I, I do, I really do enjoy this book. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, what is our tea this week, Mackenzie? So our tea this week is a classic. Oh. It is an Earl Grey. Oh, really? And this one is from Harney and Sons Fine Teas. And it is a lovely blend that blends black tea with natural lemony bergamot. Lemony bergamot. Lemony bergamot. Hmm. And um, Earl Grey tea is a tea blend which has been flavored with the addition of oil of bergamot. Mm. And bergamot is a variety of orange that is often grown in Italy and France. And the rind's fragrant oil is added to black tea leaves to give Earl Grey its unique taste. Yeah. So I think that's pretty funky. Mm-hmm. The flavored tea flavored with bergamot, which was used to imitate the more expensive types of Chinese tea, has been known in England since at least the 1820s. And in 1837, there's a record of court proceedings against Broxop and Co., who were found to have supplied tea artificially scented and drugged with bergamot in this country. So basically, Earl Grey, the like most popular tea, one of the most popular teas, is, especially in England, was a ripoff of Chinese tea. Yeah, because they wanted that good like fruity element of yeah. like the good Chinese teas, but they couldn't get it, so they flavored it with oil of bergamot. What haven't white people ripped off from um, minority groups in the world? I couldn't even tell you. Everything we've just ripped off everything. All right. Yeah, but I chose this tea because. I felt like it just, Dickens, quintessential Victorian writer. Mm-hmm. So gotta get your classic British tea, gotta get your classic Victorian British tea. But also because bergamot is often found in France. Mm, I see I the see. connection. I see. So yeah, I thought it was kind of a nice combination of the English and the French. That is a that fantastic way to look at it. Yeah. Also, I really love Earl Grey tea. And... Caffeinated. Oh, hell yeah. It, it has, how much caffeine? 40 to 60 milligrams. Oh, heck yeah. Let's get lit. Uh, both of us have a pretty long night ahead of us, so yeah. it's going to be a while. So let's go. What do we think of this delectable Earl Grey? Also, aren't you proud of me that I actually bought Earl Grey and didn't just steal it from the dining hall? Well, that's because the dining hall Earl Grey is trash. I like the dining hall Earl Grey. Oh my god. I just like this better. Also, you always put the teapot right next to the mic, and then should it, I not do that? Yeah, no. <laughs> but what if I want to pour myself some more tea later no, on? Right there is fine. All right, it's near my foot now. It's warming my feet. All right, let's let's try this puppy. I did Love just call it a puppy. Love it. Yep, it's just a good tea. That is a good it's tea. Classic. It's just a solid, solid good tea. I mean, I like honey in my Earl Grey personally. Ooh, you know what we don't have in this room? Honey. Honey. Just you know what you should buy more of? Honey. Honey, yeah. I don't I don't know. Like I'm a big fan of tea with honey. Just because I feel like you I like black tea with honey. I do. I drink a lot of black tea and a lot of green tea. Um mm-hmm. and a lot of times I just leave my tea bags in, which I know you're not supposed to do with I green tea. I cannot do with green or black tea. It would be so bitter. Because it just kind of starts tasting like dirt, mm-hmm. um, which is why I use honey, because if I put honey in, then it kind of equalizes it and then it doesn't taste as much like dirt. This doesn't taste like dirt, though, because I actually steeped it for the proper amount of time. Fantastic. Love it. it tastes like lemony bergamot. It, it just keeps pulling back to that Jane Eyre tea that we did. The tobacco. Every single tea ties back to that tobacco yep. tea. Well. Still one of my favorites I think we've covered on this um, podcast. I, I really do Ooh. like that tea. 
I'm sorry, I just, a fun fact about Earl Grey. There is a considerable history of Earl Grey tea being used as a drink mixer, in particular for gin, within the British Isles. Mackenzie, why don't we have gin? I don't know. It's similar in principle to Irish coffee, but it is seldom practiced today. Mackenzie, I know it is literally 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, but why do we not it's have gin? It's 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. You don't have to justify it. We've got plans tonight. <laughs> are you recommending that we get lit off Earl Grey and gin in Honestly, our Honestly, I'm saying it sounds fun. I'm saying I'm expecting it at my 21st. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm already <laughs> having a... I'm already, I've already got so many things planned and finished and completed ready for your 21st. And it does so, not include gin? No, because gin is awful. <laughs> well, I want to mix it with my Earl Grey and get lit. Well, how about after you turn 21? I can buy myself gin. You can buy yourself gin and mix it with your Earl Grey tea. That sounds Earl Grey tea, jeez. Earl Grey tea. Wow, you can tell that my brain's already gone after we recorded <laughs> our first episode of the day. We're doing good, 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 great, great, great. Yeah. Oh, but during the later 19th century poor working class households began to combine the drinks as a minimum proof alcohol volumes began to meaning, be meaningfully applied following an 1855 revision to the Weights and Measurements Act to the relative inexpensive spirits, making it unpalatable when taken neat. So it was very popular amongst the poor. Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> It was an affordable and pleasant pairing. <laughs> All right, I kind of I like that. Definition. Also, boiling during preparation uh, helped disarm waterborne contaminants, which oh. is a significant public health risk. Wow! Look at all that history. Ooh, this became oh associated God. with middle class, particularly female, alcoholism during the interwar years in the twentieth century. Um, we're both middle class and female, and That's we're true. about to enter a new war period. So, so hey. hey, look at us go. I I, if our parents are listening, which I really, 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 really hope they never do, I'm sorry. We're very sorry. We're sorry. We're like this. We apologize. Anyways, let's get to actual the actual book we are covering. Yeah. The Tale of Two Cities. So, yeah. A Tale so of Two Charles Cities. Charles Dickens. Charles John Huffman. Huffmum. Huffam. 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 Charles John Huffam. Dickens was born in 1812, name. and he was an English writer and social critic. Look at that beard. I, I honestly, Charles Dickens is probably one of my favorite old-timey people to look at. because He's just so eccentric. Eccentric, and he takes the good aspects of William Shakespeare, yes, i.e. the hair, the and hair then adds a goatee. Adds a goatee. Uh, uh, that's like a goat, that's like, that's a goat. this goatee is like several inches long. Like, this isn't some little scraggly white boy at a coffee shop goatee. Like, no, this is, this is a full man. Man. <laughs> man of a goatee. Man of a goatee. God. So Charles Dickens, born in 1812. Good think of more. English writer and social critic. He created some of the world's best-known fictional characters and is regarded by many as the greatest novelist of the Victorian era. I have to disagree. Yeah. I don't think he's the best novelist. I think he's a darn good novelist. Who do you think is the best? I love Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. I think she's so good. I mean, like, I I get why. I get why people love Dickens. Like, I really, I also love Dickens. I do not think he's the greatest writer in the Victorian era. All right. His work enjoyed unprecedented popularity during his lifetime. And by the 20th century, critics and scholars had recognized him as a literary genius. And his novels and short stories are still read today. 
So he Well, yeah, only because they're assigned in classes. Um, no, I read his, like I said, I just had to pick a book of literary merit, and I chose A Tale of Two Cities, so. All right, all right. Let's get it. So he was born in Portsmouth. Portsmouth? Portsmouth? I don't know. He left school to work in a factory when his father was incarcerated in a debtor's prison. Despite his lack of formal education, he edited a weekly journal for 20 years, wrote 15 novels, five novellas, hundreds of short stories and nonfiction articles, lectured and performed readings extensively, and was an indefatigable letter writer, and campaigned vigorously for children's rights, education, and other social reform. Oh, well, he was sick? Hmm? Was he sick? Is that what you just said? Indefatigable letter writer, as in, like, couldn't be fatigued. Oh, I thought you like, said something like no. an illness. I'm no. losing my mind. You're good, you're good. Uh, but his literary success began in 1836 with a serial publication of the Pickwick Papers. Within a few years, he had become an international literary celebrity, famous for his humor, satire, and keen observation of characters in society. His novels, most published in monthly or weekly installments, pioneered the serial publication of narrative fiction, which became the dominant Victorian node for, mode mode for novel publication. The node. The node. <laughs> the I, node. <laughs> Stop quoting! <laughs> Pitch perfect. perfect! Pitch perfect is good. If you disagree, I'm gonna move out. I disagree. Go ahead, move out. I'd love to leave in a dingle. <laughs> You're gonna have to explain that a dingle... A double single. ...is a double with only one person living in it, because a otherwise... dingle! <laughs> well, dominant mode for novel publication. Cliffhanger endings in his serial publications kept readers in suspense. The installment format allowed Dickens to evaluate his audience's reaction, and he often modified his plot and character development based on such feedback. For example, when his wife, Kyra Pottist, expressed distress at the way Miss Moucher in David Copperfield seemed to reflect her disabilities, Dickens improved the character with positive features. His plots were carefully constructed, and he often wove elements from topical events into his narratives. Masses of the illiterate poor chipped in happenies to have each new monthly episode read to them, opening up and inspiring a new class of readers. Which is super interesting, I believe. I, I really like the, like, I like the idea of weekly installments of mm -hmm. a novel, because, like, I, I think, like, there are a lot of books now, especially young adult books, get a huge amount of criticism. Um, because, like, they, they, like, will do something with a character, and then after the book is published, and, like, people begin to read it, they're like, oh, well, this book loses its merit because of how they describe this one particular character. Like, yeah. there's not really an opportunity to get For feedback. that kind of feedback. Um, insert fanfiction. The modern-day equivalent of installment writing is fanfiction. I mean, yeah, it yeah. is. But, like, also, fanfiction has such a bad reputation it now. It does. But I do want to dispel one of the most common myths about Dickens. Oh, yes. Um, there's a really popular myth that his novels are so long because he was paid by the word. What? And I'm sure we've heard, like, because he did yeah, install, I've heard, yeah, yeah. He was not paid by the word, but he was paid by installment. So when he was publishing his novels in serial form, you know, they appeared over a period of many weeks or months. Yeah. And um, each part, he kind of put them in parts, contained 32 pages of letterpress, two illustrations, various advertisements, and came wrapped in a flimsy green paper front and back cover. The price for each part was one shilling, and which was very cheap compared to the standard price of a book. So he really, he didn't get paid by the word. He just had to write 
a installment that was a decent length for people to read. Yeah, because, like, you want to make sure that one shilling is worth. Yeah, but you also, no, he was not paid by the word. He was not using this flowery language. If we're talking about people who were paid by the word, I don't know. I'm Googling this. I don't know if Victor Hugo was paid by the words, but if he was going to talk about the Parisian sewers for that long. Victor Victor Hugo is in Lay Miz. Yeah, okay. Did Victor Hugo get paid by the word for his novels? Oh, this is Yahoo Answers. That's not going to tell me the truth. Our, all right. Well, well, we'll figure this out later because I'm yeah. very curious. Tweet at us if you know. If you know, because I hear that rumor all the time and I didn't quite think it was true. And it's definitely not true of Dickens. All right. So, anything else with Dickens' life? Um, that was, he had a pretty... Pretty chill life. Pretty chill life. Just a man writing some books. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. Um, and um, so he was in 1865 while returning from Paris. He was involved in the Staplehurst Rail Crash, where the train's first seven carriages plunged off a cast iron bridge that was under repair. And the only first class carriage to remain on track was the one in which Dickens was traveling. What? Yeah. And before rescuers could arrive, he tended and comforted the wounded and dying with a flask of brandy and a hat refreshed with water and saved some lives. And before leaving, he remembered the unfinished manuscript of our mutual friend and he returned to his carriage to retrieve it. And he later used this experience as material for his short ghost ghost story, The Signal Man, in which the central character has a premonition of his own death in a rail crash. He also based the story on several previous rail accidents, such as the Clayton Tunnel rail crash of 1861, and he managed to avoid an appearance at the inquest to avoid disclosing that he had been traveling with Ternan and her mother, because he was traveling with a woman named Ellen Ternan, which would have caused a scandal. Oh. Was he married? Um, he hired professional actresses for the play The Frozen Deep, written by him, and he fell in love with one of the actresses, Ah. Ellen Ternan, and the passion was to last the rest of his life. He was 45 and she was 18. Ooh, I can see how that can be an issue. And he made the decision to separate from his wife Catherine in 1858, when divorce was still unthinkable, especially for someone as famous as he was. But, like, also... Yeah. Kind of good on him that for... he did divorce her and not just have this side chick. Yeah, because I, I think it's honestly, like, being open about the fact that, like, you don't want to stay with your partner mm-hmm. um, for any reason is probably better than just oh, leading yeah, them definitely. astray for, like, years. Yeah. Well, but. in 1870, he suffered um, a stroke. He'd had a series of strokes before this point at his home after a full day's work on Edwin Drood, and he never regained consciousness, and the next day, five years to the day after the Staplehurst rail crash, he died at Gads Hill Place. Mm, that's kind of, that's mm. sad. But also, like, he lived a pretty full life. He did. He lived a not short, not super short life. No. He lived he, to he, be 58, which in the Victorian era was probably not terrible. Also, like, I feel like he was pretty accomplished. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, and he had so much. He did. He did some good, some good works. Yeah. So yeah, we we like Dickens. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I would I would agree with that. Like he's he's pretty all right. Mm-hmm. He he does some things. <laughs> <laughs> Can I help you? So I turn over to Jane, <laughs> who has her phone out, which okay, and she is playing. A game called Slices, which has plagued my life. 
via her for the last month. It's ruined me. It's addictive, apparently. And it's Jane's incredibly addictive. Obsessed with it. I started playing it in August, and I'm only on like level 32 because it takes so long to win. I'm putting my phone away. I'm literally okay. throwing it across the room. I'm All done. Right. I'm sorry Good, because we're moving on to the plot overview. Yay! Woo woo! So Tales of Cities. I don't think it's super long. I mean, it's not short, but it's not, like... It's long enough. Long enough. Let me see where my copy of it is, so we can, like... That's not that It's a sizable book. book. Oh, this is a really tiny font. I pull out my copy to show off how small it is, but it's written in, like, eight-point font. <laughs> I think it's around, like, 300 words or something. 300 words? No, 300 pages! Um, it's 400. 400. 400. My, my edition, which is the Penguin Classics edition, is, like, just over 400 pages. Alright, so it's probably, like, or if it's... Printed in bigger font, yeah. it's going to be around like 500 Probably. pages tops. Also, the cover of mine is just someone holding a decapitated head and a Big guillotine mood. and some soldiers. I'm sorry, I'm the sh I'm the soldier who's like on top of- That one? Yeah, I'm The one, one who's like, what is he- is he on a horse? Uh, he, I think he is, that's a mane of a horse. Yes, he's the, on a Jane horse. Jane is the soldier who's holding a sword on top of a horse and staring- Intently. Tormentedly into the audience. <laughs> yeah, that is me right now. Tag yourself. I'm that dude. <laughs> the one I'm decapitated. The I'm the decapitated head. Big mood. All right. Okay. Oh, mine has drawings in it. Oh my god! Put your book away and give us the plot summary. We love books. So yeah, the year. This this episode's a mess already. The year my is attention 17, span. Oh, seventy five. That's reminiscent of a folk song. I'm not going to get into that right now. Oh my god. Because <laughs> now that's in my head. We love Barrett's Privateers. All right, all so right. the year is 1775, and social ills plague both France and England, hence the Earl Grey. Yum. And Jerry Cruncher, an odd job man who works for Telson's Bank, stops the Dover mail coach with an urgent message for Jarvis Laurie. The message instructs Laurie to wait at Dover for a young woman, and Laurie responds with the cryptic words, Recalled to life. At Dover, Laurie is met by Lucy Minette, a young orphan whose father, a once eminent doctor whom she supposed dead, has been discovered in France. Laurie escorts Lucy to Paris, where they meet Defarge, the former servant of Dr. Minette, who has kept Minette in a safe garret. Driven mad by 18 years in the Bastille, Minette spends all of his time making shoes, a hobby he learned while in prison. Laurie assures Lucy that her love and devotion can re recall her father to life, and indeed they do. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, just a heads up, if I ever get incarcerated, teach me how to make shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the likelihood is of you being incarcerated with a shoemaker, though, because back then it would have been more common. It was a very common profession. No, I'm saying if I get incarcerated, I am expecting my first package from you to be a shoemaking kit. I'm pretty sure a shoemaking with kit. With no weapons. Yeah, I was gonna say, you can't, because if you're making shoes out of presumably leather, because that's how you would make shoes, you need... Lots of, you forget I worked at a historic site where we had a shoemaker on site and I worked with him to make shoes. Find <laughs> a way to get me a shoemaking kit, Mackenzie. This is all on the assumption that you go to prison. And? You don't know my life. You don't know my story. I do, actually, pretty yeah, well. No, literally, the only thing I can I can, can like think of myself going to prison for is just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Tax fraud. <laughs> because I don't know how to fill out my taxes. Valid. Or just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and just agreeing with whatever someone says to me. All right. You murdered that man. So, I mean, I, I guess I must The have. year is now 1780. 
Charles Darnay stands accused of treason against the English crown. A bombastic lawyer named Striver pleads Darnay's case, but it is not until his drunk, good-for-nothing colleague, Sidney Carton, uh, oh, Sidney Carton. Who assists him in that court, and the court acquits Darnay. Carton clinches his argument by pointing out that he himself bears an uncanny resemblance to the defendant, which undermines the prosecution's case for unmistakably identifying Darnay as the spy the authorities spotted. Lucy and Dr. Manette watch, from the, watch the court proceedings, and that night Carton escorts Darnay to a tavern and asks how it feels to receive the sympathy of a woman like Lucy. Ooh. Carton despises and resents Darnay because he reminds him of all that he himself has given up and might have been. In France, the cool Marquis Evremond runs down the plebeian child with his carriage. Manifesting an attitude typical of the aristocracy in regard to the poor at that time, the Marquis shows no regret, but instead curses the peasantry and hurries home to his chateau, where he awaits the arrival of his nephew, Darnay, from England. Arriving later that night, Darnay curses his uncle and the French aristocracy for its abominable treatment of the people. He renounces his identity as an Evremond and announces his intention to return to England. That night, the Marquis is murdered. The murderer has left a note signed with the nickname adopted by French revolutionary Jacques. You know who else adopted the nickname Jacques? Who? Simon and Love Simon. Uh... <laughs> also in Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda, like both the book and the movie. Oh my god, you're right. You're right. I sure am. Yep. Right. A year passes, and Darnay asks Manette for permission to marry Lucy. He says that, if Lucy accepts, he will reveal his true identity to Manette. Carton, meanwhile, also pledges his love to Lucy, admitting that, though his life is worthless, she has helped him dream of better, more valuable existence. On the streets of London, Jerry Cruncher gets swept up in the funeral procession for a spy named Roger Cly. Later that night, he demonstrates his talents as a resurrection man, sneaking into the cemetery to steal and sell Clive's body. In Paris, meanwhile, another English spy known as John Barsad drops into Defarge's wine shop. Barsad hopes to turn up evidence concerning the mounting revolution, which is still in its covert stages. Madame Defarge sits in the covert shop- Covert or covert? Covert. Covert. We both just said it wrong like eight times? Which is still in its covert stages. Madame Defarge sits in the shop knitting a secret registry of those whom the revolution seeks to execute. That's what I'm going to do with my next I, project. Yeah, wait. So I've always gotten confused by this part. Is she literally just knitting people's names like into a scarf? Probably. Or something like that. Or like oh. a blanket or something. that Because no one's going to suspect like some woman knitting in a corner. She's a big mood. She is. She is indeed. All right. I'm going to go back to my... Oh my god. Oh, hold. <laughs> Madame right. Defarge sits in the shop knitting that secret registry. Back in London, Darnay, on the morning of his wedding, keeps his promise to Manette. He reveals his true identity, and that night, Manette relapses into his old prison habit of making shoes. After nine days, Manette regains his presence of mind and soon joins the newlyweds on their honeymoon. Upon Darnay's return, Carton pays him a visit and asks for his friendship. Darnay assures Carton that he is always welcome in their home. The year is now 1789. The peasants in Paris storm the Bastille and the French Revolution begins. The revolutionaries murder aristocrats in the streets and Gabelle, a man charged with the maintenance of the Evremond estate, is imprisoned. Three years later, he writes to Darnay, asking to be rescued. Despite the threat of great danger to his person, Darnay departs immediately for France. As soon as he arrives in Paris, the French revolutionaries arrest him as an emigrant. Lucy and Manette make their way to Paris in hopes of saving him. 
Darnay remains in prison for a year and three months before receiving a trial. In order to help free him, Manette uses his considerable influence with the revolutionaries, who sympathize with him for having served time in the Bastille. Darnay receives an acquittal, but the, that same night he is arrested again. The charges this time come from Defarge and his vengeful wife. Carton arrives in Paris with a plan to rescue Darnay and obtain the help of John Barsad, who turns out to be Solomon Frost, the long-lost brother of Miss Frost, Lucy's loyal servant. At Darnay's trial, Defarge produces the letter he discovered in Manette's old jail cell in the Bastille. The letter explains the cause of Manette's imprisonment. Years ago, the brothers Evermond, Darnay's father and uncle, enlisted Manette's medical assistance. They asked him to tend to a woman, one of whom the brothers had raped, and her brother, whom the same brother had stabbed fatally. Fearing uh, that yes. Manette might report- I forgot about this part! Oh, yes. Fearing that Manette might report their misdeeds, the Evermonts had him arrested. Upon hearing this story, the jury condemns Darnay for the crimes of his ancestors and sentences him to die within 24 hours. That night, at the Defarge's wine shop, Carton overhears Madame Defarge plotting to have Lucy and her daughter, also Darnay's daughter, executed as well. Madame Defarge, it turns out, is the surviving sibling of the man and woman killed by the Evermonts. I, for I keep forgetting how interconnected oh, yeah. this entire so book is. Good. It's so good! Carton arranges for the Manette's immediate departure from France. He then visits Darnay in prison, tricks him into changing clothes with him, and after dictating a letter of explanation, drugs his friend unconscious. Barsad carries Darnay, now disguised as Carton, to an awaiting coach, while Carton, disguised as Darnay, awaits execution. As Darnay, Lucy, their child, and Dr. Manette speed away from Paris, Madame Defarge arrives at Lucy's apartment, hoping to arrest her. There she finds the supremely protective Miss Pross. A scuffle ensures, and Madame Defarge dies by the bullet of her own gun. Sidney Carton meets his death at the guillotine, and the narrator confidently asserts that Carton dies with the knowledge that he has finally imbued his life with meaning. Oh. I love A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Because, like, the whole thing is Carton is also in love with... Lucy. Oh, and yeah. And he just the wants her time. to be happy. He yep. just wants to care for her. Oh, my God. I... Mm, uh, he just... He deserved more. <laughs> he deserved more. Mm-hmm. They all did. Yeah, they all did. Die in the French Revolution in your violence. Yeah. yeah, but we love A Tale of Two Cities. At least I do. I, I mean, it's a I, very beautiful book. It really is. It's got some fantastic imagery, and honestly, all the interconnections of the... Oh, yeah, how everyone's, like... It sets oh, a standard for novels. So it good. really does. All right, do we want to move over to what I'm talking you about? your spooky notes? Um, this one isn't spooky. This one's not spooky. We already did that episode. Good job. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We're recording on the same day. Spoiler alert. I already said I know, that. I know, but I'm giving them an explanation for my me being like this. Uh, yeah, my brain is already kind of gone, so sorry I'm dying this episode. <laughs> dying? So I do that. Jane just gave me, like, the death glare. Like, I think I'm dead now. So, I have very short notes for this episode, and I apologize. Honestly, I just... I, I didn't want to talk about, like, the difference between Paris and London. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want to talk about, like, the French Revolution, really. Um, I'm kind of talking about the French Revolution, but not really. So, this book plays... 
like place takes place right before the Reign of Terror and then into mm-hmm. the Reign of Terror. Um, in Paris, so like not directly talking about the book, I wanted to talk a little bit about mob mentality. Oh. So this phenomenon goes by many names such as herd mentality, mob mentality, pack mentality, and gang mentality. It describes how people can be influenced by their peers to adopt certain behaviors on a largely emotional rather than rational basis. In its history, mob mentality has been a prevalent descriptor for human behavior since people began to form tribes, migrate in groups, and perform cooperative marketing and agricultural functions. So think like in tribes, the entire tribe has to be invested in something that they're doing or else it will not succeed. Like, if one person in a tribe wants to grow grain, but another person wants to grow corn... They gotta figure that out. They gotta figure it out. Corn is a grain. Okay, grain and... Wheat and corn. Wheat and corn, or grain and cucumbers. Like... are such different crops. Exactly! That's the point, (laughs) Mackenzie. So they have to, like, work... like collaboratively to ensure the safety of the tribe and that leads to like a mentality of we are one unit right so the idea of group mind or mob behavior was first put forward by the 19th century french social psychologist gabriel thard and gustave le bon very french this episode yes shocking (laughs) (laughs) also i'm not going to pronounce anything right so bear with me Herd behavior in human so- uh, societies has also been studied by Sigmund Freud and Wilfred Trotter. Uh, Thorstein Ve- Veblen's The Theory of the Leisure Class, um, that's the title of the book, illustrates how individuals imitate other group members of higher social status and their consumer behavior. This is like starting to get more into the, like, the 20th century and into modern day. Um, so, like, think about how middle-class Americans are more likely to buy expensive cars and houses and go on vacations as a mean to replicate upper-class living. Like, middle-class people will buy a swimming pool just mm-hmm. so they can be seen as, like, yep. upper-class. Um, so cultural, social, and economic factors all converge to create trends in consumer behavior, which is really fascinating. 21st century academic fields such as marketing and behavioral finance attempt to identify and predict the rational and irrational behavior of investors. Um, Driven by emotional reactions such as greed and fear, investors can be seen to join in frantic purchasing and sales of stocks, creating bubbles and crashes. So it's like a whole, it's, it's like one investor starts to see their stock dropping or going up. It creates a frenzy, like the... The idea of, like, a shark frenzy almost, yeah. but, like, it happens in investments in the stock exchange in that market, which I think is super interesting. As a result, herd behavior is closely studied by behavioral finance experts in order to help predict future economic crises, hmm. which is fascinating, and they should have thought of that before 2008. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Um, <laughs> it's been 10 years. And we're still living in the aftermath. I mean, you're not wrong, but also... Do we also, ever recover? No. Um, and it's not just consumer behavior. Think of the trends of YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, even Vine. Um, like, the Ice Bucket Challenge. That was a trend. It mm. happened. We should forget it, it after... It was for a good cause, though. But did anyone who didn't do it end up paying anyway? Like, I don't know I got actually... nominated when I was in a different country, so I couldn't do it, and then I just never... That's the thing, is, like, I don't know if it actually helped, it just kind of brought awareness, but it didn't actually, I don't know if it actually Mm -hmm. did Did anything. anything. Because then people forgot about it in, like, two months. Yeah. 
So, all right. There's some evidence to this idea of mob mentality. Researchers at Leeds University performed a group experiment where volunteers were told to randomly walk around a large hall without talking to each other. A select few were then given more detailed instructions on where to walk. The scientists discovered that people ended up blindly following one or two of the people who were instructed because they, like, instructed on where to walk because they appeared to know where they were going. The results of this experiment show that it only takes 5% of confident looking of like con yeah, confident looking and instructed people to influence the direction of 95% of people in the crowd. That's wild. And 200 volunteers did this without even realizing. Think of like lemurs jumping over the edge of the cliff. Mm -hmm. One did it, so they all did it. It's That's lemmings, like, not lemurs. I knew it was an L thing, I couldn't <laughs> think of it, and then I did not fact check, so lemmings. But also like Think about in political movements or activist movements. Mm -hmm. If one person creates enough of a stir and looks confidently, like confident enough, or says that they're knowing enough about a certain mm -hmm. topic, people are going to follow it. Honestly, I think this sense of like mob mentality or group mentality or group mind is a lot of the reason that President Trump was elected. Yep. Because I think he created enough of like. I am confident about this one thing and yeah. this thing and this thing, and I've got the facts and figures, even though I never he said what the facts nothing. and figures. But he acted like he did. People were like, yes, it checks out. Yeah. So. Preface, we hate Trump. Yeah, we really do. We do not like this man. I think we've said that before, but just in case someone heard that and was like, they're defending Donald Trump. No. I'm saying that that's the reason <laughs> that he's there, but I'm not saying he should be there. Hashtag bring back Obama. Hashtag... Take back the Senate. Hashtag vote on November 6th if you're in the U.S. This might go up after November 6th. Yeah. Hopefully we took back the Senate, guys! <laughs> wow, look at us go! <laughs> Future <laughs> us, please! <laughs> so, I mean, this is also, like, a major, um, social science, like, psychological, like, psychology field. Um, like, it is... Popping. Uh, it, it has a huge amount of, um, like, research behind it, like, around collective behavior and everything like that. I actually took an entire course on collective behavior, which is why I bring up the, um, example of Trump is because we had, like, in my class, mm -hmm. we talked so, he's so populist. much about populist leaders mm -hmm. and how their charismatic energy can... It, like, creates this frenzy within people yeah, to follow it, them. Yeah, it causes people to ignore the fact that they don't actually have the facts and figures, that they're just yeah. saying and acting like, like they know what's up. Okay, this is, this is not, like, I'm not saying that, you know, this is good mm -hmm. at all, but think about Hitler. Yeah. If you've actually listened to any of Hitler's speeches or mm -hmm. seen recordings of it... He's very charismatic. He's incredibly charismatic, and he has this way of talking that makes you want to believe it. Mm -hmm. And if you did not, if you weren't in a situation where you could see the yeah. effects of what his words were doing or what his policies were physically doing to create, like, the Holocaust yeah. and also dislocate, like, a lot mm -hmm. of people. I, that's not the right word, but, like... Displacing? Expulse a lot of people yeah. and everything like that. You would think, yes, this man knows what he's talking about. He is mm -hmm. right. I can feel... In, in my mind, I understand that what he's saying, yes, that is why my country is falling apart. And I think that's why a lot of Americans follow President Trump, mm -hmm. is because he's speaking to a lot of the elements that people feel within themselves that they don't necessarily know why. So what you're saying is that this mob mentality is going to lead to us guillotining Trump. 
<laughs> Was I getting too serious? I think that that's what's going to happen. I mean, you're not wrong. So we are not condoning violence against the president. But certainly maybe just not. The, maybe just but if history the... does repeat itself. What we're saying is President Trump is going to get guillotined in the middle of Paris. We're not going to do it. No, but <laughs> it might happen. It's not us, but it might happen. Also, isn't this technically like slander and also can't is we inciting violence against like the president? We're not actually going to do it, guys. Well, we're also really not suggesting you should do it. Like, don't actually murder people. Instead, use your political voices to vote and vote people out of positions of power that you don't think they belong in. Also, leave politicians voicemails calling them bitches, because that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> You get the answering machine half the time anyway, you can just be like, bitch, and hang up. That's what I did to Ted Cruz. <laughs> you mean the Zodiac Killer? Yeah. I, did, I called the Zodiac, Cru- the Zodiac Killer a bitch. That's a big damn mood. I'm just so sorry. Stop dropping things. I told you you can't eat. <laughs> I'm eating Reese's Pieces again. I'm so, so sorry. I'm hungry. So, yeah, basically what I'm saying, well, okay, we really should not say anymore because if, like, anyone in the presidential, like, in the White House heard this, we could definitely get arrested for, like, an extended period of time for inciting violence against the president. We're not telling you to actually kill the president. Yeah, no, let's not do that. Um, so, that's kind of what I was leading as, what I was thinking about, because, like, mob mentality, French Revolution, a lot of the peasants just wanted to change their lives, and Mm -hmm. the people who were the most radical were the most vocal, so it just kind of happened, and, uh, like, honestly, every so often when I think of the French Revolution, I think about the parade of women that walked from the center Mm -hmm. of Paris to Versailles with fish, the fish women, you know what I'm talking about? I do know the fish women. The fish women. I just think about them, and think about how amazing they are, and just, like, that was kind of my mentality in itself, because who in their right mind thinks, yes, let's go storm the Versailles. Fish. With fish. <laughs> Me. I think that. I'm gonna storm the Versailles with fish. <laughs> Visits me when I'm abroad, storms the Versailles with just a bucket of fish and starts throwing it on the It's gonna be vegetarian stuff. fish, though, don't worry. Is that, is that just tofu cut out in the shape of a fish? Maybe. But then <laughs> I'd be wasting really good tofu. <laughs> you get soyed and you, you get, get soyed! <laughs> Oh, this episode is rough. Do you have your funky facts? I do have my funky facts. So, A Tale of Two Cities shows up in popular culture quite a bit. Um, Like, Mad Men, that TV Mm -hmm. show, a lot of times has... There's, like, one particular episode that they... They named something in reference to Tale of Two Cities. I don't have it pulled up exactly in front of me. But it talked a lot about the differences between conservative New York and liberal mm-hmm. Los Angeles and, yeah. like, that, those two fields fighting against each other, which is, like, shows a parallel to the distinction between London and Paris, yeah. the time, the Paris and crisis in London and peace, and, like, that sort of contrast, which I think is super interesting. They also talked about how, um, in one of the presidential debates between... God, I'm gonna pull it up because mm-hmm. I actually have an example while you're pulling it up. Yeah, in um, Cassandra Clare's *The Infernal Devices*, they reference it, which takes us in Victorian London. They reference *A Tale of Two Cities* constantly, and like the three main characters are kind of in a love triangle that's supposed to be reminiscent of Lucy, Charles, and Sydney. 
Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Which is, that's actually why I read Tale of Two Cities. Really? Because my friend Susan just keeps popping up, but we read The Infernal Devices early in high school, and she had read A Tale of Two Cities because of that, and she was like, you have to read it. It's so good. It makes oh. the series make so much more sense. Like, so that's why I read it, because of Susan. Nice. So, in United States politics, at the 18, or the 1984 Democratic National Convention, the keynote speaker, Governor Mario... Uh, Cuomo. Cuomo, thank you, of New York delivered a scathing criticism of then-President Ronald Reagan's comparison of the United States to a shining city on a, on a hill with an allusion to Dickens' novel saying, Mr. President, you ought to know that this nation is more of a tale of two cities than just a shining city on a hill. Damn. Right? Yeah, and then, right, and then the one that I was, found interesting is because I love, like, comic books and yeah. Marvel and DC. Jane's a nerd, we get it. I'm a nerd. So, I say as I quote only classic literature. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. So, um, A Tale of Two Cities served as inspiration to the 2012 Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises, Ooh. by Christopher Nolan. The character Bane is in part inspired by Dickens' Madame Defarge. Oh! He organized kangaroo court trials against the ruling elite in the city of Gotham and is seen knitting in one of the trial scenes like Madame Defarge. Oh my gosh! Yeah! There are other hints to Dickens' novels such as Talia al Ghul being obsessed with revenge and having a close relationship to the hero and Bane's catchphrase, The Fire Rises, as an ode to one of the book's chapters. So I just, I just think it's really... I want to know which chapter. Yeah, you look into that. So I just think it's really interesting that the fire rises. Mm-hmm. I hope it's actually a chapter. One is the sea still rises. Huh. And I don't see any that are above. But who knows? Wikipedia lied. Well, I mean, the sea still rises. That could be a reference. Cause yeah, because it could be, like, yeah. the fire still rises or something like that. Yeah. Be. Anyways, so I just thought it was interesting how this, like, book, even though it's literature, it also really... Uh, also, every single re- person and their mother knows the opening line. I honestly can't think of it right now. Okay. I, Jane, I'm gonna just toss this to you and you're gonna kick yourself. Oh, yeah, it was the best times, it was the worst times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. Okay, 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 I get it. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. That is the first, like, sentence. Yeah, I I hate Dickens. (laughs) But at the same time, I love Dickens. Anyways, I was also thinking, like, Two cities torn apart. Like, that was kind of what mine was going to, and I was like, that's not right. I know it's not right. So I'm going to give this back to you. Thank you. Um, But that's all I got. That's what you I got. got. All right. Ooh, love Dickens. Yep. I think we're going to wrap it up here because we're both kind of a mess and Woo! busy and tired. So thanks so much for listening to Spilling Tea. The tea is spelt and the covers are closed. See you next week. Bye. Bye.